Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, we will take a quick look at the headlines this week. Trail life becomes a valid alternative for scouting. A new old debate over what the Bible teaches about sexuality rises again. And Lisa Van Riper, president of South Carolina Citizens for Life, joins me to talk about an abortion case from Texas. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of uh, Truth and Politics and Culture. I appreciate you watching on Facebook today, watching on YouTube. And if you're listening to the podcast, thanks for doing that. Please leave us a good review. And I uh, hope you're enjoying the holiday season so far as we are. We are getting close to Christmas, really close. And like I said yesterday, this is one of my favorite times of year. Um, looking forward to getting family together and all the things that go along with Christmas. I was doing a devotional this morning, early this morning, and uh, one of the questions was that, that I was asked as I was reading the stories about the incarnation, uh, the birth of Jesus, one of the stories was, what, what are some of your favorite things about Christmas? And of course, I, I th talked about our Thanksgiving tradition of giving... Um, ornaments to our children and to our grandchildren, and they add them to the Christmas tree that year. Sometimes we, the ones in California, we mail them out there and we get to see them via Zoom. Um, we get to watch them open their, their Christmas ornaments, and that, that's a big favorite thing of mine. Just a lot of traditions in our family about Christmas, and the main thing is all of us getting together. And then it said, what is, what is something you don't like? And I had to think about that because I I just I like shopping. I mean, most people are like, uh, I gotta go shopping. We're gonna have to go out there and find a parking place and stand it. You know, I, it's Christmas. Those are the kind of things that you do at Christmas. Now, granted, my shopping load is light because my wife does ninety percent. Well, she shops for everybody except for herself. So I have one job, and I do, I just don't need to mess it up. I just need to get out and. Christmas shop for my wife. And and I enjoy doing that. I mean, I like going in the stores and looking at this, looking at that, calling up my daughters, you know, getting them, um, doing FaceTime so I can say, what do you think about this? And what do you, but uh, I guess the thing that I don't like, if there's something that I don't like about Christmas, it's that you run into people from time to time that definitely don't have the Christmas spirit. I mean, they're just in a bad mood. Um, so, and, and they, you know, you see them talking to other people, like to uh, people in the stores that are trying to serve them, and they're just rude, and um, I don't know. that That's the kind of thing that, that bothers me, because I think we need to be thankful. I mean, we need to cultivate an attitude of thanksgiving, particularly at Christmas when we're experiencing the greatest gift that the world could ever know, which is the gift of God's Son coming to be born, to dwell among us. Um, as John tells us. And, and so um, I, I, I just think we should, I, I hope you'll embrace and enjoy the season this year and enjoy the good things about Christmas. All right, it's an all, always a good day to protect innocent human life. South Carolina Citizens for Life is a nonprofit, single-issue, right-to-life organization devoted to restoring legal protection to the unborn and protecting innocent human life by eliminating abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia from our society. In January, they're going to hold their 50th Jubilee celebration in Columbia, beginning with a proudly pro-life dinner on Friday, January 5th, and ending with a proudly pro-life march and rally at the State House on Saturday, January 6th. Seth Dillon, who is the CEO of the Babylon Bee and guest speaker for the dinner at the Columbia Metropolitan Convention Center on Lincoln Street in Columbia. He's coming. I mean, he's going to be um, in the house, and he's, he's a great speaker, uh, he's a satirist. Of course, satire is what the Babylon Bee is, is all about. Um, fake news you can trust, I think, is the, is the tagline for the Babylon Bee. Um, but Seth will do a great job talking about uh, creating an, an ethic of life, an environment where life is welcomed. 
So hopefully uh, you'll be able to come and join us. Check-in begins at 5. Doors open at 6 p.m. Dinner served at 6.30. On Saturday, the march and rally begins at 11 with a march from the USC Russell House on Green Street and ends with the rally on the steps of the State House beginning at noon. Uh, I'm already looking at some scripture and thinking about what I'm going to say because they've asked me to talk about what the year of Jubilee means and how it could relate to the pro-life movement. And uh, so I'll be doing that, honored to do it, and glad to, uh, to be participating. For more information about these events, you can text SCLIFE to 50457. That's SCLIFE to 50457, or go to sclife.org. Lisa Van Riper is going to join us at uh, 8 o'clock this morning. She's the president of South Carolina Citizens for Life. And we're going to talk about, <clears throat> we're going to have a broad discussion today about the pro-life movement. I, I think it's really important that believers and people that people that are in the pro-life movement, most people that are in the pro-life movement, are they believe in God. They believe, and, and part of the reason they believe that life should be protected in the womb is, is because life was created by God in His image, and life is precious. All life is precious. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today in light of the Texas case, but also the fact that Nebraska has on their um, agenda, they're going to be voting in Nebraska on whether or not to, like several states, including Ohio, uh, Kentucky, I think uh, um, Michigan, they're going to be voting as to whether or not, uh, Kansas, voting as to whether or not to just open up abortion to any time during a pregnancy. And so Nebraska is a state where hopefully the series of losses that pro-lifers have suffered can be reversed. All right, quickly, let's get to a couple of things that are in the news. Harvard has decided that they are not going to fire Claudine Gay uh, for the moment. She's off the hook. Harvard's president, this is according to National Review, um, brought a lot of derision in toward her because of her testimony and sort of a glib performance before the congressional committee this past week. Uh, she and two of her counterparts at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of Pennsylvania displayed conspicuous tolerance, this is according to Noah Rothman, for acts of anti-Semitic harassment. And then, you know, the, of course, on top of that, even before this sort of broke into the public awareness that these elite Ivy League university presidents were not able to speak directly to the issue of anti-Semitism or genocide in a, in a way that, that really made sense, um, and But then you've got also these questions about Claudine Gay and her academic scholarship, which in an academic environment should matter. Um, as, uh, as the Washington Free Beacon's Aaron uh, Siberman and others have now demonstrated beyond any doubt, Claudine Gay's modest contributions to the sum of human knowledge were plagued by plagiarism. This offense, too, was summarily dismissed by Harvard stewards the university has made an exception to its own rules by allowing um, by allowing Gay to update her decades-old work so that it comports with the academic standards to which she should have adhered at the time of their publication. So, in other words, it, they're they're allowing her to go back and have a mulligan. She's got a do-over. Uh, she can go back and take academic work that was published and then correct it the, the uh, errors that led to, or lack of citations, that led to just outright plagiarism. And, and so this is, didn't, Noah Rothman goes on here to, I think, ask the definitive question about what's going on here at Harvard. He writes, why are we witnessing this Herculean effort on Gay's behalf? Uh, because, unlike McGill, Gay represents the full flowering of the voguish progressive commitment to, to the social justice activism. To sacrifice her to her critics would be to in, indict the whole project of progressivism, the whole idea of, of uh, intersectionality where, I mean, you, you look at McGill. McGill is a white female. Claudine Gay is an African-American woman. And when you begin to look at the intersectionality points, they rack up for Claudine Gay, and they're not present, hardly, for McGill because she's a white female. About the only intersectionality point that she gets on the critical theory scale is that she's female, but being white is against her. 
And then with, with Claudine Gay, she's, she's African-American. She's a minority. That's, that's one point. Then she's female. There's a point. Um, and so the, and this, is, this is how decisions get made in progressive environments. These kind of attributes are elevated over the things that normally would be considered when you're talking about the qualifications of someone to be the president of Harvard, Institute, Harvard University or any of the universities. Um, this, I'm going back to Nora Rothman's comments here. It wasn't her work that propelled her to this position, to the position she occupies. Quote, that's about the number you'd normally uh, need to get hired as a first tenured track assistant professor, professor at a decent state university, said New Mexico associate psychology professor Jeffrey Miller of the whopping 11 peer-reviewed journal papers Gay published in her academic career. Rather, her ascension to Harvard's president uh, represented the culmination of the diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda. And Rothman goes on to say, he says, don't take my word for it. The Harvard Crimson makes that case in its write-up of Gay's appointment to the Harvard presidency. They emphasized her biography and accidents of birth over her academic accomplishments. This is Rothman's comments here. Her foremost challenge as president following the shortest selection process in almost 70 years this summer was not, in the Crimson's estimation, anything having to do with scholarship. Rather, it was the challenge presented to colleges and universities after the Supreme Court's decision striking down race-based admission policies as unconstitutional. Her introductory video is replete with the uh, with a lot of just comments that is sort of serves as the secret handshake among administrative professionals, um, the language of the academy that advertises little more than an individual's membership in the club. Now that's the way Rothman puts it. Now this is not over. She's still under fire for her comments. There's still a lot of questions, a lot of questions being asked about her scholarship as it relates to plagiarism. So we'll continue to follow the story. But right now, Harvard's Board of Trustees are standing behind her. They say that they've been through much deliberation over this, and they've decided, uh, I think it was like the number's up to 512, I believe, is the number that I saw. That may not, it, it's within that neighborhood of professors that have now signed a petition uh, asking that she not be fired. And so. Uh, at the at the moment, it appears that her job is safe. All right, more news coming out this week that may have impact on the election. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu uh, endorsed former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley for the Republican nomination for president on Tuesday. This is according to Daily Wire. Uh, Sununu's endorsement is a significant victory for Haley, who is relying on a strong performance in early states to propel herself over former President Donald Trump, who has so far dominated the early primary polling. By the way, the most recent poll out of Iowa shows that since October, Trump has widened his lead. Since we've gone through the Republican debates, uh, Trump's lead has widened in Iowa. Uh, it looks like Trump is at, well, I can't remember the number. Uh, maybe it was, I think it was north of 40%, something like that in Iowa. Whereas uh, it, it, you've got uh, Ron DeSantis at 19% and Nikki Haley right behind him at 17%. And so somehow that there's going to be this um, rise of either Haley or DeSantis to challenge Trump in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Uh, New Hampshire, maybe. Um, it just doesn't, I don't see how between now and the Iowa when the when Iowa holds its caucus system, I just don't see how that either one of them can overcome Trump's lead in Iowa. They they both have good campaigns. They've got good grassroots uh, campaigns working in Iowa, but the lead is just too much for um, for Trump at this point. It seems to me. But Sununu's endorsement in New Hampshire will mean something. Now, I don't know how far endorsements go anymore. I, I talked about this before. I talked about Bob Vanderplatz and the governor of Iowa endorsing Ron DeSantis. Um, I, I don't know how much that moves the needle. I think people look at these endorsements and they say, yeah, I like Bob Vanderplatz. I like what he has to say. They might even say, I like Ron DeSantis. I, I, I think he would, would make a good president, but I'm just, I'm just tied to Donald Trump. And I don't 
for a person who comes to that conclusion, I don't know that endorsements do anything to move the needle. But we'll see. I mean, this has been a battle of endorsements, and it's con- Sununu's endorsements considered to be huge in Iowa. We'll see what effect it has. Uh, the Biden impeachment inquiry, vo- uh, Republicans voted Tuesday to advance the impeachment inquiry targeting President Joe Biden. Democrats decided to rehash Donald Trump's two impeachments. Of course, that's what they wanted to talk about. Uh, the House Rules Committee ultimately voted 9-4 to four along party lines. This is according to the Daily Signal to adopt and send a resolution to the full House floor formalizing an impeachment inquiry into alleged influence peddling by the president and close family members, especially son Hunter Biden. Now, next week, I'm going to give you a little preview because we're going we're gonna to talk about some of the specifics of the impeachment case uh, because th- there is a lot of information out there pointing toward Biden's corruption and then there's another side being pre- presented that we don't hear a whole lot about. If if you don't if you don't if you read just conservative media, you don't hear necessarily how progressives are defending Biden and explaining some of the things that seem to me to be unexplainable when it comes to Biden's behavior, uh, particularly linked to getting you know basically bags of cash from around the world. But they do have explanations. We'll look at those next week because as this turns into an impeachment hearing, which it looks like it's, it's going to do, then we're, you, know, you, you have to hear what the other side is saying about the evidence. And I think it's important for us to hear that so that we know how to answer it um, and that we find the truth. I mean, that's you know, one of the things that we should be concerned about always um, is, is the, what is true here whether it matches our what we want to have happen or not, the truth needs to be defended, and we need to have the courage to face the truth. Um, if, and if the truth is that Joe Biden has been in throughout his life, or at least as vice president, and in between the time he was vice president and president, was receiving money from Hunter Biden, um, and influence was being gained to, uh, by these companies having access to the vice president, and then hopefully uh, the president on their part, then then obviously the, he needs President Biden needs to be impeached, and everybody should agree whether they're Democrat or Republican that that let that level of corruption deserves for someone to be removed from office. But if it, if it's not true, or if there's evidence to suggest that it's not true, then we need to consider that. We need to hear that argument. And so next week we're going to try. We're going to look at that. We're going to see what the facts are on both sides of the case, and hopefully that'll help you, and it helps me, and helps everybody to find the truth about what's really going on here. Um, I think I think a lot of us feel like we know what the truth is, and I, you know you know what? Looking at the arguments from the other side, if we're right about what's true, all that will do is bolster our ability to defend what's true and maybe to convince others and see this thing go in the way that we think it should. Um, All right, uh, a couple others just real quick here. Um, Let's see. I wanted. I knew there was – I think there was one other story that I wanted to get to. Oh, oh, I know what it is. Jack Smith went to – has gone to the Supreme Court. Now, he's bypassing basically the circuit court. He's got a judge that says that the trial for – uh, Donald Trump, it, it it you know it's can it can start in March, which is when it's scheduled to start, and so rather than let this thing work its way up through the court system, Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to rule on it, to go ahead and take it up. Well, uh, there's one reason that he wants to do that. He wants this trial to take place before the 2024 election. I mean, the the all of these charges, everything v- brought against President Trump. Um, whether there's a, a grain of truth involved in it or not. The whole purpose has been to derail his candidacy for president. And, of course, if, if the trial's delayed, uh, then that's not going to achieve the purpose. So Jack Smith is pushing hard to get President Trump on trial in March to, to try to get a verdict by May, which would be before the Republican and Democrat parties have their conventions this summer. 
And so we'll see what the Supreme Court does. They've agreed. They, they've decided rather than letting it work its way through the appeals process, they're going to go ahead and take it up um, and make a decision about whether or not the trial can be put off or whether the president – actually, this, the, the question on the table is immunity. Does the president – while he was president, is he immune from these charges because they were leveled at him while he was president of the United States? And so this will, uh, the Supreme Court's going to weigh in on this. We don't know when we're going to hear, but uh, we'll be tracking it and we'll bring it to you as soon as we know. All right. I want to talk a little bit about today about Boy Scouts and scouting in general. Um, I went back and did a little bit of research on this uh, because I wanted to introduce the idea of trail life into our thinking because trail life has become an alternative to Scouting USA. Mark Hancock is the CEO of Trail Life USA, and he was recently interviewed on the Daily Signal podcast to talk about the fall of scouting and the rise of trail life. And, of course, uh, all cards on the table. I was a Boy Scout. Um, our, I lived in a, a, a small town, Ellenboro, North Carolina, and there was a scout troop there, uh, Troop 120, uh, remember, I had that patch on my shirt. I was the troop bugler. I think I made it all the way to first class uh, before the the scout troop sort of f- uh, folded, and we didn't we didn't have the enough leadership. And so, in any event, I never made it to Eagle Scout. Always wanted to do that. Uh, also, for some reason, I wanted to get the order of the arrow, which is you kind of have to go out in the wilderness and take care of yourself over. Uh, a couple of days, but we—I I really didn't—I didn't have the opportunity to do that. But for decades, Boy Scouts of America paired young boys with godly men who poured into them a strong moral foundation and gave them leadership qualities that shaped them for the rest of their lives. Uh, they began their meetings. Every Scout meeting started with the repeating of the Scout oath: "On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country, and to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight." And then the Scout law says a Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Uh, scouting was founded in England by British war hero Robert uh, Baden-Powell in 1908, and two years later, in 1910, Boy Scouts of America was born. Six U.S. presidents were Boy Scouts. Theodore Roosevelt was a dedicated advocate of scouting. He was, uh, he was elected as the first honorary vice president of BSA, Boy Scouting of, of America, and he's the only person ever to have been awarded the title Chief Scout Citizen. And of the 312 pilots selected as astronauts, going all the way back to 1959, 207 were either Boy Scouts or act, at least active in scouting. Um, now, a little bit of history. Of course, you know, for t- over 20 years, Boy Scouts came under fire because of their commitment to Christian principles. They stood up to tremendous pressure on the question of sexuality and um, sexual alignment, uh, uh, and then they, then they began to allow homosexual men to be admitted as leaders. Um, they, they refused to do that for a long time. And in 2000, a case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, the Boy Scouts of America versus Dale, and the court ruled that the, the constitutional right to freedom of association allowed the Boy Scouts of America to exclude a homosexual person from membership because of its status as a private organization. The court said, quote, a private organization such as the BSA may exclude a person from membership when, quote, the presence of that person affects in a significant way the group's ability to advocate public or private viewpoints. It was a 5-4 decision. They ruled that uh, opposition to homosexuality is part of Boy Scout of America's expressive message and that allowing homosexuals as adult leaders would interfere with that message. But, of course, you had just tons of corporate and media pressure that threatened to bankrupt Boy Scouts of America. I mean, there's more and more corporations pulled out of their sponsorship. They were boycotts. Uh, So in 2014, the BSA National Council removed the restriction preventing homosexuals from becoming scouts. In 2015, they began allowing leaders uh, to join without... Uh, asking about sexual identity. And in 2017, 
they announced transgender boys would be allowed to enroll in boys-only programs. And then in 2019, Boy Scouts dropped the name boy and they became scouts or scouting and allowed girls to join. And prior to all those changes, uh, of course, BSA was rocked with a number of sexual abuse cases, mostly centered around leaders accused of, of abusing young boys. Uh, in the 1980s, they formed the Youth Protection Program within scouting to try to address the problem. Um, so a lot of issues with Boy Scouts of America that took an organization that was doing a, a great service to boys, young men in this country, helping them to find their way to be leaders with a good moral foundation. And so that's the current state of, of, of scouting. So what is the current state of young boys in America? Well, according to Mark Hancock, who is the CEO of Trail Life, uh, which is an alternative to scouting, quote, one in four boys now doesn't have a father in his household. They go to school, 76% of the teachers that they come in contact with are female. Over 80% of Sunday school teachers are female. So girls, what the point that he's making is that girls have good models of leadership being led by women who are able to pour into their lives and help them find their way to becoming good leaders and moral leaders. Boys don't have that, so trail life is stepping into the void. According to Tyler O'Neill at Daily Wire and the Daily Wire podcast, Trail Life USA requires leaders to be confessing Christians, but it welcomes boys of any faith or no faith tradition. Hancock also laments that boys are ungrounded, noting that 58% of Americans no longer believe that God is a source of moral truth, and his organization aims to ground them in biblical truths through its six, essential, uh, six essentials rather, of a Christian worldview, and those essentials are truth, creation, human dignity, uh, family, stewardship, and providence. And so, of course, providence is and belief in the sovereignty of God, truth, that there is truth that's knowable, that corresponds with the facts, that God is the creator, that he created human life with a purpose, that he created the world with a purpose, that human dignity means that everyone is created in the image of God and has intrinsic value. Uh, family would be the coming together of a man and a woman to establish a family, to have children, and to raise them in an atmosphere where values are passed along. All of these things. So Trail Life isn't just a Christian alternative to Boy Scouts. It's an answer to the deep crisis affecting boys in America. That's according to Daily Wire. Hancock says, we're growing boys into godly men. We've discovered a proven process for turning boys into godly men, and it involves four things, he says. He says, young men today are unguided, ungrounded, unappreciated, and uninspired. And so Trail Life seeks to give them guidance from, from good leaders who pour into them a value system that's based on truth, that, to ground them in that truth, to appreciate what it means to be a young boy and then to, to be, become a man, and then to inspire them to embrace the moral values and the, the stewardship in life that will allow them to be successful. One in four boys doesn't have a father in the household, Hancock says. They go to school. We talked about that and the number of teachers that are female and so forth. Um, and so young boys actually are falling behind girls in just about every single academic category. Now, this has been something that's been looked at for years. And Hancock says that one of the reasons this is happen happening is because these young men don't have the leadership examples that they should. Uh, he says it's we boys are largely uninspired in a culture that uh, uh, in, in, is involved with participation trophies. Uh, let's not keep score because we're going to hurt somebody's feelings. That kind of attitude, he says, that's horrible for boys. They want to be challenged. They want something put in front of them that's bigger than they are. They want to identify with something that's doing big things. And so in Trail Life, we've given them robust awards program, and we challenge them outside their comfort zone to go beyond what they thought they could do in a company of men. So Trail Life has grown to over 50,000 members in all 50 states. Now, that that's uh, excuse me dwarfed by BSA uh, or by scouting, I should say, 
but it's growing. Trail Life is is growing, and a lot of churches are participating. There's up to 1,200 uh, troops now across the country. So just just something to think about. I mean, if if we're going to be a society of strong leaders and, and male and female, we've got to have leadership qualities and principles that are passed on to this generation intentionally through people that are grounded in the truth and are passing that truth on to the next generation. So anyway, that's trail life. Um, we'll be talking to Lisa Van Riper here in just a minute. And again, we're going to, the, the significance as we pivot a little bit back toward the life question, the significance of this case in Texas is going to go far beyond just uh, Texas. I mean, the, what's happening with the exceptions in the abortion debate is that those exceptions, as I said yesterday, are being magnified to be presented as if this is every woman's experience because of restrictions on abortion. And the truth is, if if Kate in Texas had been in South Carolina, she would have been able to have an abortion. Now, you we may say, well, that's a bad thing because Texas law is stricter. But in this case, with the, the challenges that she was facing, it's likely there was a direct question of whether or not her life was in danger. And certainly, I mean, she'd been to the emergency room multiple times. And I can make the case for you, and we'll be happy to do so, that Kate, it would have been better if she had given birth to the baby that Kate was carrying. And then if even if the baby was going to die, it would not face the kind of experience it was going to have from an abortion. I mean, it, 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 there would be an opportunity if the baby was born to be able to be held by the mother. I mean, it, it, it's the, the process of dying is something that we, we turn in, and it is, it's a terrible thing. Well, let me, let me grab Lisa here. She's calling in, and I want to get her on the phone so she can join us for the conversation. Good morning, Lisa. Welcome, Lisa Van Riper, president of South Carolina, South Carolina Citizens for Life. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good morning. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine, doing fine. Just uh, finished up talking about trail life and scouting and a little bit of history about how trail life has uh, sort of stepped in to fill the gap where scouting has made a lot of changes to its program. But I wanted to get back to the question of life. I talked about this for a long time yesterday, but I, I just felt like we needed to continue the conversation today because of the significance of this case that's coming out of Texas. So I've kind of laid the groundwork, and we discussed it yesterday on the phone. What is your response to, to the fact that this woman, Kate, 31 years old, has had to leave the state of Texas to get an abortion and this is big front page news, and it's being used as a way to indict the pro-life community and pro-life laws that are protecting babies in the womb. Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack there, Tony. Um, first of all, I read the decision from the Texas Supreme Court last night in preparation for today's conversation. And it's very interesting. The news is the news reports are not. I do not believe they are accurate in the way they're reporting this decision, okay? Right. So, first of all, let me just lay a little context for your listeners this morning. First of all, this is a very sad case. Uh, for the baby, this is, this is a fatal, usually a fatal condition. Trisomy 18 is, is very serious. Uh, most children do not live uh, often to even be born, um, some just shortly after birth. There are those, however, who may live a year or two, okay? So when we say fatal, the life is shortened, but the life is not always ended. So we have to classify this as a severe, often fatal disability. Right. Um, and... It is complicated in this situation because the mother, um, the mother, has to for some reason have a C-section if she carries it to term, and it's probably because she's had two other C-sections. Okay, yeah, she and has two. Know, we need to tell people she has two healthy children, and they were both delivered via C-section, and most of the time, 
um, gynecologists, obst obstetrics, doctors in that field do not want a woman to have more than three uh, C-sections because of the, the damage, yeah. the permanent damage that can result from that. Correct, correct. Now, you know, here is what I found in the Supreme Court case. They said in the Texas law that it is totally up to the doctor to determine whether medical necessity is has has been reached in a case in a pregnancy case right and they this doctor when it was at the trial court level which is where they initially were given the go-ahead to have the abortion dr damla carson uh, that's the name of the yeah, doctor that's they, in the case they, yeah right they asked her directly she she went into court with a brief which is how you do it you went in and make your case if you are proceeding in the in the court and you and they laid out this case for this particular abortion falling under texas's exception they have an exception this is not a ban all abortions law in texas this is a life of mother state also with um, significant bodily impairment okay meaning you know your kidneys could be affected or whatever okay then it's left up to the doctor whether the case before him or her meets the criteria of medical necessity and and so the the doctor goes in it never the, the law never requires pre-authorization by a court. Right. Never. Let me let so me read. Let me let me take just won't. a second. Let me let, excuse me for interrupting you, but I, I pulled it up here, uh, the actual case. So let let me just read it um, from the case where the court says only a doctor can exercise reasonable medical judgment to decide whether a pregnant woman has a life-threatening physical condition. So. Let me stop just right there and say, you know, we've heard all these uh, pundits since this case became known that are going on different talk programs and saying, you, in, including um, candidate, uh, presidential candidate Nikki Haley, saying that unelected judges shouldn't be making this decision. Well, the judges in the case themselves said, we're not going to make the decision. But when Dr. Carson actually sued and, you know, she said that it was a risk to the mother's life. But when the case got to court, she said something different. Correct. This is absolutely where the point turns. They went on to say, and you can probably find it in, in the case, but if our audience will believe it or just go read it after us, uh, we will proceed. But the bottom line is they said, you know, let's be clear. There is uh, no reason that a woman who is has a threat to her life or a threat to her significant bodily functions has to has to get the court to say anything. In fact, it's between her and the doctor. Right. And they do not have to wait until her condition deteriorates. She this woman had been told that you will have to wait until your baby dies in utero, which can happen with trisomy or you will have to carry the baby fully to term and you'll use up your last C-section or, and then you're going to have to watch your baby die. Um, now I, I just have to tell you, I want to stop here. Having to be involved in a person's journey toward death is not a reason to kill the person. Okay. Ever. All right. Ever. Right. right. <laughs> so because so death is the end result. The That's right. Yeah, but if death is going to be the end result, so Tony, if you're diagnosed with something terrible, and I hope not, it doesn't give the De Denise the right to say, oh, I just can't bear to watch my husband die. I'm just going to go shoot him, okay, or whatever. I'm yeah. going, you know, words in some way cause his death. We don't allow that at, yet in this country. Well, so, we do in, in words, some places in euthanasia, say, but yeah. anyway. Go ahead. Right. And but in, in, in Canada, you I guess you could. But I'm talking about a third party making a decision about the primary patient here. Right. But this woman was told 
you're going to have to let in Texas, you have to let your condition completely deteriorate to the point of, of your near death. And the court said, this is inaccurate. This is not true. And so they, they reiterated that that what was presented to the trial court as, oh, this is a life situation uh, or, or a bodily function situation, when the doctor gets into court and is asked, does this meet this criteria in your opinion, she, she fails to say yes. All she had to do was say yes. She, so two things here. She never had to go to court. She could have written up in her medical records all the reasons to go on and have the abortion. For example, if baby gets sick, often mother gets sick. Okay, there are plenty. There were plenty of reasons under the current law for this to for this to have occurred had the doctor right exercised her medical judgment. And the Supreme Court, I think we agree. Look in looking at that case. One reason they said withdraw your withdraw your uh, finding trial court is because you erred. <laughs> you right. you you accepted something. In other words, you didn't follow the law here because the medical doctor had to make the decision and she failed to make it when she got to court. Right. Let me make. So let, me, let me read this. This, is, let, this let me, is not being. Yeah. Let me read this statement and it'll, and it'll clarify the whole thing. Uh, this is straight from the Supreme Court case from the text. In this case, the pleadings state that Ms. Cox's doctor, Dr. Damala Carson, believes Ms. Cox qualifies for an abortion based on the medical necessity exception. But when she sued seeking a court's preauthorization, Dr. Carson did not assert that Ms. Cox has a life-threatening physical condition or that, in Dr. Carson's reasonable medical judgment, an abortion is necessary because Ms. Cox has the type of condition the exception requires. So in other words, she can say anything she wants to to the press. She can say anything she wants to to the mother. But once she gets into court and is put under oath, she's under the peril of perjury. If And so she she tells the truth. Um, and, and this is... The, the thing that has blown this case up is that justices, that judges are making this decision, not doctors. And the truth is that the doctor in this case went to the judges who have to make the legal decision and backtracked on what she had told the mother. Absolutely. Had here, and here is the, uh, something in the Texas law that may... I could question this doctor's motives for trying to get this into court. Okay, I could, because this is one of those almost Jane Roe cases of Roe versus Wade. However, I won't because I don't know the woman. But um, she she could have in her office written this up with great medical integrity about the risk that it would cause it would cause possibly to her bodily system, et cetera. And the fact that a trisomy baby often does get sick. I mean, they're, they're, it does get sick and it causes a problem for the mother. All this could have been written up. Now, it's also in the, in the Texas law that you can sue, any party can sue someone who is aided in abetting an abortion that is not legal. Right. Perhaps that's why the woman went to court and wanted a pre-authorization. But the court is clear. It's in the hands of the medical community. And you will notice in that case also that the Texas Supreme Court said, now look, you have the court, you have the executive branch, you have the legislative branch. The legislative branch has been clear. They've done what they're supposed to do. The, the court, we're doing what we're supposed to do. And now the executive branch, uh, of course, headed by a Republican governor down there, very fine governor. Y'all, you need to get together with the, the, the medical board and you need to give them your medical community some guidance on medical necessity. Right. So, in other words, the courts have the courts really were sticking to the law and staying out of the medical and had this doctor just defended her position on medical judgment for the need for the mother, 
this case would have never hit the headlines. So well, you wonder, number one, why why this doctor brought it, maybe because she was worried about being sued. But to hasten to say we do not allow the the uh, in South Carolina under our fetal heartbeat bill, we have an exception for fatal not just any anomaly for fatal un, fetal right. fatal fetal anomaly That's and right. i believe it and it has to be it has to be diagnosed by two doctors right not judges and, and we that, also, that, this is that, yes, this is and, and i want i want to hammer that because again um, the way this case is being presented primarily in the media and by planned parenthood and those who want to undermine strict abortion laws laws that protect life in the womb. They're trying to turn this again into every woman. Any time a woman faces a tragedy like this, a, a terrible circumstance that is very emotional, emotionally wrenching, very difficult, um, no one denies that. In fact, the pro-life community cares as much about the life of the mother as we do about the life of the baby. Because we're, the point is that life is precious because it's created in the image of God. And so I don't want anybody listening to this to think that we're nitpicking this case. What we're trying to say, and or because this, this woman, Kate Cox, has faced a, an, an incredibly difficult situation, what we're saying is that the information you're being given... You're being given that information to try to convince you to turn against the pro-life movement. And the facts need to be brought out, like who made the decision. It actually did come down to the doctor when she went into court. And for whatever reason, whether she was afraid she would be sued or she was afraid she'd be guilty of perjury in a court document, whatever, the, the bottom line is we need to know the truth to be able to make the right decision about the, uh, what's actually going on in the case. And so that, that's why yes, I wanted to, to flesh that out today. Thank you. And, Tony, I, I would like to add here that this is the same. It, another reason to know the truth here is so we will not be manipulated. Okay? Right. That's right. Um, and because this is exactly what the strategy was in getting to Roe v. Wade 50 years ago, they didn't they didn't bring out the women who were not using birth control. They didn't bring out the women who were not being responsible. I mean, there's a women should be responsible for their bodies and, and women and women therefore have all kinds of tools today. If they want to be sexually active, which I'm not a proponent of being sexually active outside of marriage, but if that's your choice, that's your choice you're making with your body, then you need to understand you're making a choice where you might be responsible for two bodies your unborn child. Right. And if you right. don't want to get to that, there are all kinds of ways not to get to that. And so they don't bring that out. They don't bring out these cases. They understand that most of America and polls bear this out. And I, I hope our listeners hear this this morning. Most Americans want fewer abortions, not less abortions. Polls bear out. Not more. That right. America, not more. That's right. They want less, not more. They they want earlier than later. Okay. They because they understand not that the child is not. I mean, maybe they don't. But at fertilization, a child is is all the the person that child is going to be biologically. Okay. Right. That's right. But they people people understand the farther you get in pregnancy, the the more that 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 new human being looks really like you and looks like me and has fingerprints at nine weeks and brain waves at 42 days and a heartbeat around six weeks, cardiac activity. So they understand they're looking at ultrasounds and look at that little head and look at those arms and it gets harder and harder to, to destroy one of your own. And that, and that, that ultrasound looks, makes it clear that child is one of our own. So it, they want abortions sooner than, than later. They want less than more. And they want them in places where, per, where there is really um, not, not room for personal responsibility. Like a life of, or, or a bodily um, 
a bodily, major bodily function right. issue. Okay. Well, and here's they the thing. Here's the in, thing. They want it in the case of of assault, of assault rape, of assault rape. Right. And they there are about and it's it's it gets close. Actually, the fetal anomaly gets really to be almost a toss up. But I would say that there's a, a slight majority that that wants uh, s- some type of 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 uh, exception in a in a, at least a fatal fetal anomaly. Case, yeah, and here's okay? the thing. Here's the like thing. Let me one. let me jump in, Lisa, because I want I want to make a point here about that's where what you have just just described is accurately where most people are. I mean, if you look at the polling right now, um, you, you we can't deny that the American people are about where you've just described them. Now it's our responsibility as people of faith, as people who believe in the intrinsic value of every human from the moment of conception to continue to make the case, to make the argument, and to convince people that life should be protected beginning at conception. Um, and that's, I mean, but that's our, that's our role. I mean, we, the argument is continuing to be pressed and this case out of Texas is being used as a hammer against people like you and me and others who believe in the in the intrinsic value of life. It's being used as a as a wedge issue to try to push people further and further into the camp of those who believe that abortion should be at any time. And and that's what I wanted us to realize. It we need to pray for Kate Cox. We need to uh, kind of, in a way understand and empathize with the pain that she feels over a tragic situation in her life. But we should not allow a distortion of those facts or the case itself to be magnified into an every woman case so that people begin to think, well, it's not a good idea to protect life in the womb because the vast majority of cases that we're going to talk about are women having abortions because they, it's a bad time in their life. Uh, it's there's a career that's being interrupted. There's um, a lack of support. I mean, whatever the reason is, it doesn't have anything to do with these very hard cases that are a small percentage of total abortions. And and I think we've got very, to uh, that. yes, absolutely. Now, I have found in talking with people, find out where they are. Many people will just say, I'm pro-choice or women need a choice and then say, well, you begin to you begin to work around, you know, late term. No, no. Uh, What about, you know, what about birth control abortions, which I will tell you, social economic reasons. Right. Social economic reasons. What are and birth control abortions? That is the majority, Tony. That 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 is at at, at least ninety three percent of the abortions. Ninety three percent. Any fatal uh, health of baby, which is a bigger than fetal anomaly. Okay, but if you take health of baby, you take a life life serious health threat. I'm not talking about health of of social, you know, uh, economic stress, et cetera. I'm talking about a real bodily health threat, and you talk about rape. Those three, life uh, and incest, those four exceptions, they don't ever rise above 7%, and that's stretching the definitions of all those I just gave you. They never rise above 7% of the abortions. So I want to just say to your listeners this morning how demonic this is. There is an attempt that went on to legalize abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy called Roe versus Wade, and the same tactics being used today. They take the true tragedies of life, of a, a pregnancy that is wanted, that causes, could cause the death of the mother, or a very serious health threat to the level of bodily, of bodily function. Right. They take a statutory rape, that, I mean a, 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 an assault rape, and they take, um, uh, they take, incest is almost a different thing, but incest of a young girl by a father and uncle. And then they take and then they take this fetal anomaly, a fatal fetal anomaly. They take the hardest situations 
for families and women to face. And they make that, you, they pull at our emotions so hard that they say in order to guarantee this 7%, we, we, we must destroy 100%. Right. And again, and have a culture when we, of death. When we come right back to it, and even in these, these harder cases, I mean, I've never been a supporter of laws that make exceptions for rape and incest. And the reason is simple. I mean, I understand that politically, you, if you're going to protect life in the place that we are politically right now, without those things, we can't get protections for life in the womb, politically. But when you think about it from a theological perspective or just from a logical perspective, you don't ever execute the person. That when, when you have a baby that's created by a crime, the worst thing to do is to take the life of the baby because of the crime. Punish the crime, but don't punish the baby. The baby is the, the innocent party in the middle of this. And when you've got the number of people that are wanting to adopt in this country, the number of people that are waiting to be able to adopt, the number of people that are, are you know willing to, to be foster parents, there's so many alternatives that respect life to allowing that baby to be aborted that it just doesn't make any sense to me. But, again, politically, these are things that, in order to protect life, these are, are things that are, have had to be added. We've got to do a better job. They just get back to my better job argument. We, in the, the body of Christ, need to pound away in a, in a winsome way, but in a, in a firm way, about the image of God being in every person and that all life is precious and deserves to be protected beginning at conception. Um, I think we, we lost that somewhere along the way. Um, we, I've said this before. We were winning um, political battles in different—some were skirmishes, some were bigger battles. But along the way, we, we left the American people. That is, we, we stopped making the theological and the, the truth arguments— about the intrinsic nature of life, and we've got to re-engage in that. I think in a in a in a way that reaches people. Ab so, anyway, absolutely. And I and I, I would say here maybe kind of in closing, we need to again lift up the life of the unborn from every perspective, particularly I think theologically, but also the biological humanity of that unborn child because what I have found and I hope this is encouraging to your audience what I have found is when a state proceeds as South Carolina did by dealing with the exceptions and those are not wide open exceptions and that's a discussion for a different day we are tightened up those exceptions but if you proceed with what is emotionally just pulling at people that they can't understand and you get the uh, birth control, social economic abortions off the table, which we now have off the table in South Carolina after a heartbeat, then you can begin to talk to people who, who may be emotionally bound up still on, I see the, the, I just see the pain of rape so much I can't see the humanity of the child. I see the pain of the mother and family in a fetal anomaly. I can't see the humanity of the child. What you have to do, once you see the humanity of the child, you begin to then say, hey, these are two situations. They're bad. They're challenging. But because of the humanity of the child, we can work, help the mother work through these things like perinatal hospice, like caring for the mother even in the situation of rape. Right. So she at least carries her child born into the community, and we help her raise that child. So the bottom line is we slow down the emotional reaction so we can have a conversation by including these exceptions to begin with, which is what South Carolina did. And we have a discussion now on let's have a discussion about what do we do with a child that is obviously a human being? Because we've already said that's a human being because we have restricted abortion against birth control abortions 
and social and economic. 93% of the case is restricted. Right. So we know it, it doesn't change. The humanity of the child doesn't change. The circumstances don't change the humanity of the child. We, now, let's right. discuss the, how well, do we move forward. So Lisa, I think Lisa, thanks. We, we have to go. I appreciate you taking all the time this morning that you did. Lisa Van Riper, president of South Carolina Citizens for Life. Uh, this is an issue that we're going to be talking about a lot going into 2024. It's going to be a huge issue. We talked about the fact yesterday that progressives are going to use this to try to attack uh, conservatives. They're going to come after Donald Trump. They're going to come after DeSantis, Nikki Haley, all, all around the issue of life. And we who believe this as a deep conviction of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, we've got to be willing to take a stand and make the arguments and help people understand why life is precious. But Lisa, thanks. I appreciate the time today. God bless you. Have a Merry Christmas. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. All right. Um, we are running out of time here. I meant to get back to the issue of uh, the attacks that are coming again against Christianity as it relates to the understanding of the Scripture when it comes to sexuality. We'll take the time to do that, I promise. I'm going to start with that tomorrow on the program. <laughs> Um, so that we don't run out of time. Uh, we also have a special guest tomorrow. You're going to want to tune in because Chad Conley is going to join us from Faith Winds. He's going to be talking about the fact that he's been traveling all over the country, uh, talking to pastors, talking to people about the election. Uh, he's been doing some work with David Barton. So we'll be talking with Chad Conley. He's a good friend, and I appreciate him being willing to give us some time on the program tomorrow. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed the program today. If you did, please like and share the program on Facebook. And if you're listening to the podcast, leave us a good review so that other people will join in for truth and politics and culture. God bless you. I'll see you in the morning at 730.